Good morning. It is every year during the first Sunday of Lent that we hear the familiar gospel story of the angels leading Jesus into the desert where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and is tempted by Satan. Now, but it's interesting to note as to where this story actually appears in the Bible. For the line immediately preceding this biblical passage reads, And a voice came down from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, it seems kind of strange, doesn't it? I mean, right after Jesus is baptized, God declares how much he loves his Son, and then immediately sends him off into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Doesn't seem to be the way that you would treat your beloved son or daughter. So there must be a reason why the gospel writer crafted this story of the three quintessential temptations and had it immediately follow the initiation of Jesus to his ministry. What was the point Matthew was trying to make? More importantly, how does it impact our Lenten journey? See, some theologians speculate that this story of the temptation in the desert is actually a representation of all the temptations Christ faced during his lifetime. Which makes sense. I mean, we often forget Jesus was like us in every way except sin. Thus, he had to have been challenged with the same temptations that we do today. Pride, privilege, and power. The difference is Christ faced every one of them down. But for us and our church, not so much. See, and it's this addiction to these temptations that lead us to see the world in a new and different way. We begin to interpret the world by eyes that do not see. We begin to focus on making sure we feel comfortable and in control. We begin to place more trust in ourselves than on anything else. And it becomes all about climbing that ladder of success. And it feels good. And then it doesn't. You see, at some point, life challenges us with real questions. Like, why do I have cancer? Why did I lose my job? Why did my marriage fail? Why am I being punished? What have I done? After all, I've followed all the laws and I've never missed Sunday Mass. Well, hardly ever. Doesn't God love me? And soon this cascades to a point in our lives where we feel disappointed in ourselves, in others, and question if God is even really there. So let me share with you this true story of a Catholic University professor and his student, Tommy. On the first day of my Theology of Faith course, I watched my students file into the classroom, and it was hard not to miss Tommy with his long, dirty hair. He turned out to be the atheist in residence in my course, constantly objecting and doubting the possibility of an unconditionally loving God. And at the end of the course, after enduring each other the entire semester, he asked me in a slightly cynical tone, do you think I'll ever find God? Looking to use a little shock therapy, I emphatically said, no. Oh, he responded, 
I thought that was the product you were pushing. Well, I let him get about five steps from the classroom door and then called out, Tommy, I don't think you'll ever find God, but I am absolutely certain that God will find you. He shrugged a little, left my class, and left my life. A few years later, Tommy graduated, and was soon after that, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. But before I could search him out, he came to see me. And when he walked into my office, his body was totally wasted, and chemo had consumed all his long hair. I blurted out, Tommy, I thought about you so often when I heard that you were sick. Yeah, I have cancer in both lungs. It's a matter of weeks. Well, can you talk about it, Tom? Sure. What do you want to know? Well, what's it like to be only 24 and dying? Well, it could be worse. Like what? Well, like being 50 and having no values or ideals and thinking that booze, sex, and making money are the real biggies in life. But what I really came to see you about, Tom said, is something you said to me on the last day of class. I asked you if you thought that I would ever find God, and you said no, which did surprise me. Then you said, but he will find you. I thought a lot about that. And after the doctors removed a lump from my groin and told me that it was malignant, I got serious about locating God. And when the malignancy spread into my vital organs, I really began banging bloody fists against the doors of heaven. But God did not come out. In fact, nothing happened. Well, one day I woke up. Instead of begging for a God who may or may not be there, I just quit. I decided that I didn't really care about God. And I decided to spend what time I had left doing something more profitable. I thought about you and your class, and I remembered something else that you had said. That essential sadness is to go through life without ever telling those you loved that you love them. So I began with the hardest one, my dad. He was reading the newspaper when I approached him. Dad? Yeah, what? He asked without lowering the newspaper. Dad, I'd like to talk to you. Well, talk. I mean, it's really important. And the newspaper slowly came down about three inches, and he said, well, what is it? Dad, I love you. I just wanted you to know that. And with that, the newspaper fluttered to the floor. Then my father did two things I could never remember him ever doing before. He cried, and he hugged me. And we talked all night, even though he had to go to work the next morning. It felt so good to be close to my father, to see his tears, to feel his hug, to hear him say that he loved me. Afterwards, it was easier with my mom and my little brother. They cried with me too. I was only sorry that I had waited so long. For here I was, nearing death, and I just began to open up to all the people I actually had been close to. Then, one day, I turned around 
and God was there. Apparently, God does things in God's own way and in God's own hour. But the important thing is that God was there. God found me even after I stopped looking. Tommy, what you're saying is the surest way to find God is not to make God a private possession, a problem solver, or an instant consolation in the time of need, but rather by being open to God's love. Tom, please consider telling your story to my current Theology of Faith course. A few days later, Tommy called and said he was ready to come to the classroom, so we set a date. However, he never made it. But before he died, we talked one last time. I'm not going to make it to your class, he said. I know, Tom. Will you tell them for me? Will you tell the whole world for me? I will, Tom. I'll tell them. I'll do my best. You have my word. And, hey, Tommy, I love you. I love you, too. See, we may not have cancer like Tommy, but we all carry baggage. We all have crosses to bear. And what Lent calls us to do is to look into the mirror and embrace all of who we are. And to stop blaming others for our crosses, to stop pointing out other people's faults, and to stop blaming God for all that is wrong. Lent is not about burying our crosses. It's about embracing our wounds, our losses, and our failures. See, the mistake we make is thinking that being a son and daughter of God means that we'll never be hungry, or naked, or sick, or vulnerable, or broken. On the contrary, it means just the opposite. Because just as Tommy discovered, that's where God is always waiting. It's the space where God's able to reach us, to love us, and to forgive us. I think that's why we're given the story of God sending his beloved son into the desert. Because like Christ, we all will have those barren days. We'll always be faced with various temptations. But it's this desert time where we need to be reminded that our God is the one who dwells within us and is therefore always present to us, with us, and working through us. I don't know about you, but that gives me a whole new meaning of the season that we call Lent.